thank you, Josh. Josh and I grew up on the same street together, so it's a, a joy to be able to serve here with Josh and his wife, Beth. Um, let me uh, just reiterate what Mike announced earlier about our Sunday evening service. Uh, not tonight, but next Sunday. Uh, afterwards, we'll be having a, a congregational meeting, what we call family time. We'll be, we'll be discussing kind of the direction of our church, and, and in particular, um, some things related to the land that we're trusting the Lord to be able to purchase to one day uh, put our church building on. So uh, I encourage you to come join us. Uh, at the, those are always great times, our Sunday evening events are always, are always great. Let me ask you to turn uh, to the book of Haggai, uh, chapter 1. Now, you know, it's, a, it's amazing to me how much pride has, has filled us as, as Christians, because I say that, turn to the book of, of Haggai, your first thought probably is, okay, where's the book of Haggai? And the second thought is, I hope no one knows that I don't know where the book of Haggai is. And, and for those of you who aren't believers in Jesus Christ, you think us Christians are ridiculous, and you're probably right. Uh, so let me help you. Uh, page 791. Ha, 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 right. Uh, okay, so go to Matthew, the beginning of the New Testament, and go work backwards. Matthew, then work backwards into the Old Testament. You'll find Malachi. You'll find two Z books, and it's in between those. So the third book back in the Old Testament is, is the book of, of Haggai. We're going to be reading uh, chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through one through 15. So why don't we stand? I trust you may be able to find it by now, working back from Matthew. Why don't we stand and, and uh, let's read. Uh, I'll, I'll read verses 1 through 15 for us of, of Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it, uh, when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, which each of you, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. You may be seated. 
Let me pray for us as we enter into discussing God's Word. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Uh, thank you for the worship that has been uh, in this room and, and even as we're setting up chairs and, and going through our Sunday school classes, the worship that pervades our church. And God, I pray this morning that you would continue to be worshiped as we look at Haggai chapter 1. Uh, would you help us to uh, be uh, rid of, the, of anything else that might be hindering us from hearing you uh, clearly this morning? Think of all the, uh, the meals that were shared and, and uh, hopefully the, the tryptophan has worn off and that we are alert and attentive to what you have for us this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a tale of, of two men. Let me first introduce to you John Meisenheimer. Uh, John was a prolific swimmer at Eastern Kentucky University. He was a captain of, of the swim team and, and also uh, had uh, shared some records there at Eastern Kentucky. But this is not what John Meisenheimer is, is known for. Uh, you see, John, as a student at Eastern Kentucky, in between classes, the pastime, would start uh, playing with a yo-yo. And his love for yo-yos began to grow to the point where now, today, John owns over 6,000 different yo-yos. He is the Guinness World Record holder for uh, yo-yo collectors. Um, he's a founder. Uh, some other stats about John. He's the founder of the American Yo-Yo Association. Uh, he actually owns a yo-yo that is six feet tall and 820 pounds. don't know how you play with that, but we'll see. Uh, he has a special uh, achievement award from the National Yo-Yo Museum. Uh, he's competed in the first modern yo-yo national championships. You may have heard of his book, Lucky's Collector Guide to 20th Century Yo-Yos. It's on your shelf, I'm sure. And he has uh, two DVDs on yo-yos, which I'm assuming you can buy for the low, low price of 1995. That's the first man. John Meisenheimer. Let me introduce you to the second man. This man, I really don't even know his name, uh, but John Piper's father speaks of this man. Now, John Piper is a, a pastor at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis and a prolific writer, and he, Piper talks about his dad who was an evangelist, uh, by that meaning that his dad didn't preach in just one church every Sunday. He, he traveled all around the country and preached at different churches and different events and, and venues. And there was one particular event, uh, one particular preaching engagement that John Piper's father would, would tell a story about. Let me, let me just read what John Piper wrote about this, this story. A story of a man converted at an old age, it's titled. The, the church had prayed for this man for decades. He was hard and resistant, but this time, for some reason, he showed up at the church when my father was preaching. At the end of the service, during a hymn, to everyone's amazement, he came and took my father's hand. They sat down together on the front pew of the church as the people were dismissed, and God opened his heart to the gospel. He was saved from his sins and given eternal life. But that did not stop this man from, from sobbing and saying as, as tears ran down his wrinkled face, I've wasted it. I've wasted it. Talking about his life. Now we can shake our heads in, in pity for both men, right? One who, who seemingly is wasting his life on a collection of, of yo-yos. Uh, the other who wasted his life and now has little time to, to correct it. So it begs the question for us, how do we know if we're wasting our lives? How do we know if we've misplaced our priorities? Because we're, we're very busy people, aren't we? pursuing the American dream, um, retirement, the, the management of our, 
of our image, working long hours to preserve that need for fun summer vacations, uh, entering college in, hoping, in hopes of getting a degree so that we can have a nice car, a nicer home, the 2.3 children. Life is reduced to the pursuit of things we cannot keep. One, one writer says, we, we are feverishly and ineffective in our activities. So we dig in our heels and we look for answers on managing our priorities. We look to the universities. Marin College in California has this to say, uh, advice to their students on, on managing their, their priorities. So they say, write down all the things you want to do today. Note homework due or tests or subjects you want to emphasize. Include shopping and personal calls. Okay? Uh, this is a reminder. Use it to set daily priorities and to reduce decision-making and worry. Rewrite this list every morning. Visualize things, okay, visualize things that help you focus on what to do. This list is also a measure of your day-to-day success. Check off items as you finish them and praise yourself for each accomplishment. Way to go, self, right? We need to look really no further than God's word for answers if we've missed, to see if we've misplaced our priorities because we constantly struggle with not pursuing our greatest priority, our, our God-word priority. So this morning, let's look to God's word, and let's look to the book of Haggai to help us to focus on our highest priority. We see God at work in Israel telling them to consider their ways. And through Haggai, God is telling us today, consider our ways and to pursue the supremacy of God in all things. We must consider our ways and pursue the supremacy of God in all things. So before I go any further, let me give you some context for Haggai 1, uh, verses 1 through 15. It's a passage of Scripture that I'm guessing many of us uh, have not heard preached very often. As I told someone I was going to be preaching on Haggai 1, the response I got was, well, you want people to come back, don't you? Uh, And yeah, I want you to come back. And I really do believe God has something for us here in Haggai. But before we get to that, let me give you some context of where we are in the history of the world. Okay, now, so stay with me here. Uh, Adam and Eve. Okay, you with me so far? So good? Okay, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and the amazing Technicolor dream coat. Even though it's the most biblically, biblically accurate musical, but fun to sing, right? Okay, so we have Joseph. And then let's skip forward to uh, Moses. Okay, you still with me? Um, Israel in the promised land. Oh, I missed a lot there, didn't I? Israel in the promised land. Okay. And then, uh, because of Israel's rebelliousness, God allows, um, let's see, first it's Assyria, uh, takes over the land and disperses Israel out. And then God allows Babylon to take over Assyria. Okay. And then God allows the Persians to take over Babylon. So the Persians are ruling in the land. Okay. Now that gets us to the book of Ezra. So let me, let me have you turn to the book of Ezra here. Okay, you've got um, Kings and, and Chronicles and then uh, Ezra. All right. First and second Kings, first and second Chronicles in the book of Ezra, near to the front of your Bible. So we started here with Adam and Eve, and now we're, we're coming to the book of Ezra, and then Ezra's going to lead us to Haggai. Okay, so stay with me here. Ezra's going to lead us to Haggai. So I said that it was, we left off in our timeline here, that it was the Persians that were ruling the land, right? The land that God had promised for Israel, it was the Persians. And so here we have, this is the first, the first year of the rule of those Persians here in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. So in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, we have the Persians ruling the land, and Cyrus is the king. Cyrus is the king of, of Persia. 
And Cyrus basically says, I'll sum up verses one through three for you. Hey, these Jews have been dispersed all over the place from the Assyrians, the Babylons, and now us. I want to allow any Jew that would like to, to return to the pro- their homeland city, Jerusalem, to rebuild their temple. So he makes a decree. Anyone who wants to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, you can go back there. And I tell you what, about 50,000 Israelites take him up on his offer. And they head back, they leave Babylon and head over to Jerusalem where they begin to work on the temple. And so uh, go to Ezra chapter 3, Ezra chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. We see that they started on their work. They went back. These were passionate. Yes, we get to rebuild our temple. Let's go. And so they head over Jerusalem. And you see in, in verse 10 of chapter 3 of Ezra, and when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, uh, the priests and their vestments came forward with, with trumpets, skipped down in a little bit in 11, and they praised the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. The foundations have been laid. They're moving forward and building this temple. And now, go to Ezra 4, verse 4. Something happened here. The praises died down. In verse, chapter 4, verse 4 of Ezra, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to keep building on this temple. And they bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of, of Persia. And eventually, if you look at the end of, of chapter 4, verse 24, it says, Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. The very thing that they had headed to Jerusalem to do had ended. They had stopped working on the house of God. And in verse 24 it says, It ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now that name should sound familiar to you, Darius. Remember in Haggai, chapter 1, it said Darius was the ruler of Persia? Okay, so that connects us to Haggai. In fact, just turn the page or or just look at chapter 5 of Ezra, verse 1. Now the prophets, who? Who appears here in chapter 5? Haggai. Haggai appears now to speak the word of the Lord to Israel. Now, I don't know why. I mean, God could have taken the book of Haggai and kind of drop it in right here in Ezra chapter 5, but it's a separate book later on in the Old Testament. It might feel a little disconnected because of that. But in chapter 5, verse 1, Haggai shows up on the scene, and we're ready to hear now what Haggai had to say to Israel in Haggai chapter 1. So hopefully you kept your finger in there. Go back to Haggai chapter 1. You know, we really don't have a lot of information about Haggai. There, there's no uh, lineage given uh, for Haggai in, in the scriptures. Um, we know he's a prophet of God. Um, but remember, our, our big idea for today is we must consider our ways and pursue the supremacy of God in all things. We must consider our ways and pursue the supremacy of God in all things. My first point today, a first point, a priority of self brings hardship. The priority of self brings hardship. So Haggai, in chapter 1, verse 1, goes first to the leaders of Israel, first to the political leader, Zerubbabel, and then also to Joshua, who's the religious leader right now of the Israelites. And he says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now immediately, let me pause right there, immediately you see a distance in relationship between God and his people. Because it says in in verse 2, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. These people, you notice God doesn't say my people. 
He doesn't say, my children. He doesn't say, my dear beloved ones who left the comfort of where they were and came to Jerusalem, Jerusalem to begin building my temple. He doesn't say those things, does he? He takes this very, very seriously, and there's a distance in the relationship between God and his people. At the same time, we see why there is a distance. It's not because of God. It's because the people are saying the time has not yet come for us to rebuild the temple. The time has not yet come. We started on it, but the time has not yet come to continue. You see here, God's people are walking a fine line here between obedience and rebelliousness. I liken it to a, a father. Uh, on a summer day, he leaves for work, and he sees his son on the couch, and he says, Son, when I come home, I would like to see you to have mowed the lawn today. So would you do that today? When I come home, would you have the lawn mowed? Son says, Sure, I'll, I'll do that, Dad. Great, great. So, you know, eight or nine, ten hours later, Dad comes home. As he pulls in the driveway, he notices that not one blade of grass has been touched. And so he walks in the house, and he looks at the couch, and there's his son sitting in the exact same spot in which he left him this morning when he left for work. And he says, son, the, the lawn is not mowed. What's the problem here? What's the issue? You didn't do what I asked you to do. And, and here's the son's response. Oh, dad, I'm still going to, but. Dad, I'm still going to, but. Dad, I'm still going to, but, but did you know that this television channel was going to show a, a marathon of the Rocky movies today? I couldn't miss that. Or, I was going to, but, but, but Dad, I, I made it past level six on the Wii, and I just couldn't stop. I was on fire today. I couldn't stop, okay? You see, the son is walking this fine line between obedience and rebelliousness. Now, I don't mean to, to pick on our teenagers here. I might have seen a few smiles back and forth there between father and son. Because um, we're all of this nature, right? We're all of this nature. Uh, we say, God I, God, I know I'm supposed to love my wife as, as Christ loved the church, but, but you don't know the things that she said to her friends about me. Um, God, I know that I'm supposed to be a helpmate to my husband and to encourage him, but he is just so lazy, God, I know I'm supposed to honor my father and mother and, 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 and do that, but, but you don't know the things that they've said to me. God, I know that I am supposed to talk to others about what it means to have a relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ, but I'm just shy. I, I just don't know what to say. We walk the same fine line between obedience and rebelliousness as the Israelites do. And we... We worship this idea of what life is supposed to be like in our, our world. The Israelites know different. We're going to rebuild it, but the time has not yet come. There are many excuses that Israel could have used for why they're not rebuilding, building onto the temple. Not one of them is valid. Not one of them is valid. They had grown cold in their service to God. James Boyce says this about Israel. He says, they were the right people, living in the right place, wanting to do the right work for the right reasons. And they were this remnant that, that could have stayed, but they, they left, but they chose to rebel. They chose to rebel. Let's go back to our text here in verse 3. Haggai has addressed the leadership, Zerubbabel and Joshua, and now he addresses 
all the remnant of Israel, all 50,000 here. It says this in verse 3 and 4, Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? God uses some very intentional wording here. Is this a time for you yourselves? Okay, He's almost in a sense, he's putting his finger on their heart saying, is this a time for you, you yourselves, to dwell in these, these paneled houses, these it almost, some commentators say these almost extravagant houses. They didn't have to put up these, this extravagant paneling, but they did anyway. So God is very intentional in his wording. Is this a time, putting his finger on their hearts, for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while, while my house lies in ruins? And so we see these three words in, in verses 5 and, uh, and 7. Now therefore, thus says Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. The NIV says, give careful thought to your ways. Quite literally, put your heart on the road. The literal translation would be, put your heart on the road. Examine what you're doing here. Don't you see, your sin is not bringing forth God's blessing. It's bringing hardship. And you're working hard. It says you have sown much, but you're harvesting little. You see, your sin is not bringing forth the blessing of me. That's only bringing hardship. My, my wife and I have had a chance to go to the biblical counseling conference that's talked about in your bulletin today. And, and one of the things they, they teach you there is that when you're coming alongside, one, alongside someone who's struggling in sin, um, help them to see the outcome of their sin. Help them to see how it's working out for them. Help them to see the consequences of their sin. Because here's the reality. Sin is so deceiving. We think it's going to give us what we want, but it doesn't. It's like my childhood dog, Molly. She was a toy fox terrier. It's all about seven pounds of her. She had about a two-inch tail. You know what she would do daily? She would chase her tail on a daily basis and would do that for year after year after year until she died. She would chase her tail deceived, thinking that one day I'm going to catch that tail. One day it's going to happen, so I'm going to keep going at it. Our, our, we're so deceived ourselves when it comes to sin. We keep chasing that pleasure and thinking, sin's going to give it to me. I'm going to keep, keep chasing, keep chasing. And it, we're never going to find pleasure in the deceitfulness of sin. Romans 7:11, Paul says this, For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. It's like a one-year-old child who reaches uh, to touch the hot burning uh, uh, stovetop, right? And as, as he does that, the mother or father approaches him and, and, and lovingly flicks him on the back of the hand and says, no, no, don't, don't touch that. And you've been there, right? The child looks at mom and dad right in the eye and goes to do it again. The mother or father comes and flicks their hand and says, no, no, don't do that. That child is deceived thinking that if I put this priority on self, on what I want to do, I'm going to find great pleasure there, only to find that what waits for him is, is hardship. Now, how many of you went shopping on Black Friday? How many of you? It's okay, you can admit it. You can admit it. I, I was one of you too. I went shopping on Black Friday. 
Now, I, have, I have four simple rules when it comes to my Black Friday shopping, okay? Four simple rules. They are, uh, number one, I don't g- get up any earlier than my usual 5.30. I'm not going to get up any earlier on Black Friday, okay? That's my first rule. Second rule is I never drive more than a couple miles. And so since I live in Washington, I have lots of good options within a couple miles of, of my house, so I never drive more than a couple miles. Uh, number three, I never stand outside. So if I arrive there early, I, I stay in my car. And, and kind of going with that, I don't cut in line. Some of you, you know, you wait in your car. You can't cut in line if you wait in your car, right? And number four, my wife has probably been up with a child at some point during the evening, so uh, don't wake up Casey because she needs her, her rest. That's my, my fourth, uh, fourth rule. But it's interesting, uh, this, this uh, Friday I headed to Menards. That's been my staple the last couple of years, headed to Menards. And, you know, when I get in that door, there's just something that kind of stirs up inside of me. Do, do you get this too? You get this little stirring inside of you of, I'm going to walk out of here with something. Yeah, I don't even know what it is yet, but I'm going to walk out of here with something, and it's going to be good, whatever it is. And so I walk in there, and, uh, you know, I'm on a mission. I'm on a mission. I even saw Gary Algren for the second year in a row. I said, hey, Gary, I can't talk to you. I'm on a mission. I got something to get, you know. And so I'm, I'm walking down every aisle, and then you see it. You see that thing. Oh, there it is, and it's 20% off. I'm going to get that. And so you scoop it up, and you take it to the clerk, and you put it on that little conveyor belt, and, takes it and you say, yeah, that's mine. I'm going to get that. Here's my money. You take it. I put it in my car. I drive it home. I, I put it on my kitchen table. I, I take the bag, and I, I set it out there. And I don't know if this happens to you, but you sit there, and you think, is that it? Is that what I was so excited about? And I've, I've literally done this before. I go back to the bag and look back inside of it, and surely there's something else in here that made me so excited to, to get the, whatever this was I, was I was trying to get. You see, I have this priority of self that says, you need to satisfy yourself and get all the things you can. And I think it's going to bring me pleasure, but it only brings me hardship because I find that I'm out some money, first of all. Then I find that that, that desire, it's not quenched. And it only brings about more hardship. Last week, Pastor Daniel started off in our our study of the book of Luke that we're going to be doing typically here on Sunday mornings during our worship service. And, and uh, last week he did an overview of the book of Luke, and he'll continue this uh, next Sunday. But if you were here last week, he talked about how there are different types of Jesuses that we have created. Uh, not the biblical Jesus, but other versions of Jesus that we've created to kind of uh, help us to manage our own lives. And so, for example, he said there was uh, one version was the, the social justice Jesus that he, uh, we, we've, some have constructed or we have constructed this version of Jesus that cares very much about social issues but doesn't want to talk about sin because that would offend people. We don't want to offend anybody. And so we have these different versions of Jesus. And so I was thinking about what's the root of that? Why do we come up with these different versions of Jesus that are so different than the biblical version of Jesus? I think the reality is the reason why we've done that is because we have a priority of self. I want my life to be the way I want it to be. And I don't want to have to uh, 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 align myself with the biblical view of who Jesus is. Again, it's a priority of self, and we think it's going to bring us pleasure, but it only leads to a warped view of God and to hardship. So let, let, let's go back to our text here in Haggai 1, ver, verse 8, because God gives the remedy of the pursuit of self, and then it, as it, it continues, he, he gives uh, a description of all the other hardships that Israel has, has uh, dealt with. So in verse 8, God gives the remedy here uh, to this hardship. Go up to the hills and bring wood and, and build a house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, and behold, it came to little. 
and he eventually says, why? Uh, because my house lies in ruins, and, and God continues to lay out the, the hardships that Israel has faced because of their lack of faithfulness uh, to God. So let me, let me bring us some application for this first point here. Let me bring us to your, your doorstep here. What does it mean for us to consider our ways? What does it mean for us to consider our ways today? Well, I, I believe it means we need to leave no stone unturned to see if our lives are exemplifying a life of selfishness. We need to consider if we're allowing God to reign as supreme in every aspect of our lives. We need to ask God, what is my paneled house? What is that thing that I am pursuing? And if I trace back that thing to my heart, why, why am I deceived in thinking that this selfish desire, this priority of self will get me pleasure? Now, for some of you, you've already nailed an area of your life that you know you are passionately pursuing the priority of self. For others, you're thinking, it's not just an area of my life. My, my life really exudes a lifestyle of selfishness. Well, if you're in one of those two camps, your response is still the same. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that what he's done for you on the cross has completely justified you. You are completely forgiven for that sin. And respond in repentance to ask Christ for forgiveness and to move away from that sin and move towards God. Now, if you're having trouble locating an area of your life which, in which you are pursuing the priority of self, well, it could be praise the Lord, right? God is doing amazing work in your life and, and keep going. Or it could be you're just not looking hard enough. <laughs> you need to look, dig deeper and see, boy, is there an area of my life that I am not surrendering to the Lord? If you need some help, I've got, I got three copies of this. I'll, the first three people that come to me, I'll give this to you. This is a great little resource. It's called My Heart, Christ's Home. And what this resource does, is it, it kind of relates your, your heart to like a home. And, and it helps you to look into each kind of room of your heart, each room of your home to see, are there things that you are hanging on to that you have not surrendered to the Lord? For, for example, are there things that you're doing in your living room that you have not surrendered to the Lord? Are there things that you are doing in your bedroom that you are not surrendering to the Lord? Is there that deep, dark closet you have never opened that you need to ask the Lord's help to open that up? That's what I think we need to do to consider our ways today. Okay, so our, so our big idea for today is that we must consider our ways and pursue the supremacy of God in all things. And our first point was the prior, priority of self brings hardship, right? Okay, so our second point is this. The priority of God and his word brings pleasure. The priority of God and his word brings pleasure. Let's go back to our text, Haggai 1, verse 12. It says that, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. So they went and did what verse 8 described, right? They went back and they did what verse 8 described. They went to the hills, they brought wood, and began building the house of the Lord. Okay. And then it says in verse 8, remember I said I'd come back to this, um, that God could take pleasure in it and that he would be glorified. So if I think about this second point, a priority of God and his word brings pleasure, kind of sub-point one, it brings pleasure to God. It first brings pleasure to God. God's priority is his glory, and he takes pleasure in his people, making him 
a priority. I think it's Psalm 147, 11. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Psalm 149, 4. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Luke 12, 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Philippians 2, 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He takes pleasure in his people, placing him as a priority. So if we have a priority of God and his word brings pleasure to God, subpoint one, subpoint two is it brings pleasure to us. It brings pleasure to us. Now, let me be very clear here when I talk about uh, giving a priority of God and his word bringing pleasure to us. Let me first say what I'm not talking about, okay? What I'm not talking about is God gives us the pleasures of this world as we obey his word. That God does not promise us uh, healthy bodies and material wealth as we obey his word. This has come to be known as the prosperity gospel. And there are many out there that preach this gospel, which I would say is not even a gospel at all, that say if you obey God, he is going to bless you physically and bless you materially. Okay? Um, this is not the pleasure I'm speaking about. John, John Piper says this, I don't know how you feel about the prosperity gospel, but I'll tell you what I feel about it. Hatred. <laughs> Hatred. It is not the gospel. It elevates the gift above the giver. Bobby Ross writes in Christianity Today, an article, January of, of 2009, cleverly titled, Prosperity Gospel on Skid Row. <laughs> it says some of the icons of the prosperity gospel uh, have run into financial turbulence. Not all their troubles can be blamed with the nation's economic crisis. In Fort Worth, Texas, a review board ruled December 7th that Kenneth Copeland's ministry's $3.6 million jet does not have tax-exempt status. Huh. The ruling came after the ministry, whose 1,500-acre campus includes a $6 million church-owned lakefront mansion, and they refused to release the salaries of Copeland, his wife, and others. See, the promises of the prosperity gospel don't even relate to the leaders of this movement. And sadly, this text, Haggai 1, is used by prosperity gospel preachers to justify their lifestyle, to justify their lie that if you obey God and his word, he will bless you in your health and bless you with your wealth. So let's look at what I believe what Haggai is really saying about what it means that God will give us pleasure as we make him a priority and make his word a priority. We see this in verse 13 through 15. And 13 says, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declare the Lord. So first of all, we see that the pleasure that God's people receive here is encouragement. They receive encouragement from God. Now, do you notice here the difference in God's language in verse 13 versus back in verse 2? Do you notice here? In verse 2, it's these people, right? And the distance of relationship. And then as God's people respond to him and his word, in verse 13, he says, I am with you. Can you imagine the encouragement that the remnant must have felt at this point? I am with you, declares the Lord. Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God says, I am with you as we obey his word. No longer what uh, no matter what we see around us, 
We get encouragement from the Lord because he is with us, okay? So first, we, we get encouraged from the Lord. Second of all, I think we see in, in Haggai here is we get empowerment from the Lord. We get empowerment from the Lord. And we see in, in, in verse 14, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Joshua. The Lord stirred up the spirit of all the remnant, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. We, too, can receive the pleasure of empowerment from the Lord as we make him a priority, you know, obey his word. If you look, we just finished the study of uh, Ephesians here in our worship services, and Ephesians 1.13 says uh, that we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone to pay the penalty for the sins are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30 says that this Holy Spirit, we are, we are sealed for the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 1.14 says the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And so I, I liken this to uh, uh, a glass of, of, of milk. Okay? And if you take a, a bottle of, of Hershey's chocolate syrup and you squeeze it into that milk, what, what happens when you squeeze that Hershey's syrup in there? It all kind of settles down there in the bottom, doesn't it? And that chocolate has indwelt that milk. It's sealed in there. In the same way, for those of you who have made a decision to ask Christ into their lives, pay the penalty for the sin, the Holy Spirit is deposited in you. You are sealed for the day of redemption. You are uh, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, an interesting thing, though, in Ephesians 5.18, Paul says this, Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. So there's a sense here of a difference between being indwelt and sealed versus being filled with the Spirit. Okay? Now a literal translation of Ephesians 5.18 where Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, is, is this. Be being filled. Continually be filled. Never stop being filled with the Holy Spirit. So you go back to our milk illustration. You take a spoon. You put it in there, right? What happens? You stir it up. And that chocolate begins to invade every aspect of that milk. I think that's what Paul is talking about. Now, we're sealed, we're indwelt, but let's stir that up. Let's receive the empowerment that God has for us by allowing the Holy Spirit to fill every aspect of our lives. And as we submit to God in every aspect of our lives, we'll get that empowerment from the Lord. Okay? Now, I think it's a shame. Too often in, in our Christian circles, we say that the person has made a commitment to Christ. I think what we should say is they've made a submission to Christ. They've submitted themselves to Christ because who doesn't want Jesus to forgive their sins? Everybody wants Jesus to forgive their sins. But, you know, you say, I've received Jesus as my Savior and my Lord. See, that's the part we're not so keen on, right? But as we submit ourselves to the priority of God and His Word, we get the pleasure of empowerment to live out the Christian life. It's been said that the unsatisfied Christian life is the unsurrendered Christian life. So don't just say, I'm going to try harder, Ben. Say, what room can I allow God in? Say, what do I need to put off? And what do I need to put on? Because we must consider our ways. We must consider our ways and pursue the supremacy of God in all things. So my question for us today is, will you have a Godward priority? Will you have a Godward priority. See, God no longer dwells in temples as he did in the days of the book of Haggai. He no longer dwells in a temple built by man. He dwells in the hearts of those who have placed their faith in his son, Jesus Christ. We are his temple. We are his house. God is asking us today, what is the condition of my house? 
What is the condition of my work in your home? What is the condition of my work in your church, your neighborhood? What is my, the condition of my work in your town? God is saying, what are you doing to fulfill the purpose for which you have been set apart by Jesus Christ? Now, from the start of the book of Haggai to the end of chapter 1, 23 days have passed here. And we see in verse 15, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of, of Darius the king. Well, I wonder if today is a date for you. I wonder if today is a date in which you would say, this is the day that I decided to make God supreme by his enablement. I wonder if someone, maybe you, can write down on the 28th day of November in the year 2000, 2009, my life changed. So let's put off our desires for the priority of self and put on the priority of, priority of God. Let us never come to the end of our lives and say, I've wasted it. I've wasted it. Would you pray with me? Father God, that would be the desire of my heart, and I, I trust the desire of, of those here in this room, that we would not come to the end of our lives and say, I've wasted it. I've wasted it. Lord, would you allow us to receive the pleasure of the encouragement from you, the pleasure of empowerment from you, to live a life that shows a priority of you and your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.